0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I first met Maggie Haberman when I was the strategist for a Freddie Ferreira, mayoral candidate in New York in 2001, and she was a young reporter. Uh, I've since uh, read her religiously and kept in touch with her as she's emerged as one of the great political reporters in our country. She now works for the New York Times covering this campaign. But because of her New York ties, no one knows more about the two nominees of the parties for president this year, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So it's great to sit down with Maggie the other day, talk about them and about her career in journalism. Maggie, it's good to have you here. You are... Um, you have a special place uh, with me because I am an old ink-stained wretch, having started as a newspaper man, and you come from a newspaper family. Your your dad uh, is a bit of an institution around, around the New York Times, around journalism in this town. Uh, t- talk a little about him. First of all, what kind of name is Clyde for a nice Jewish boy? That's what I want to know.
0: Thank you for having me. Um, so, I'll, I'll uh, add to the newspaper family bit and then talk about the, the interestingly named Clyde. But uh, yes. my mother's father was also a newspaper man. Uh-huh. Um, my uh, grandmother supposedly worked at the New York Post. My parents met at the New York Post, and um, I met my husband at the New York Post. So, there's a whole thing. Um, my dad is better known for his time at the New York Times. Um, he was, <laughs> I asked him once why my grandmother named him Clyde, which is not a a typical name and uh, supposedly when she was pregnant with him she was reading a romance novel and the hero was named Clive with a V uh-huh. And she got confused during the labor and went with <laughs> Clyde, and so my father is a little more like a like a Woody Allen, uh, you know, romance hero as opposed I to, as opposed to yeah. I thought um, well,
1: he was way too old for it to be about Bonnie and Clyde. It, so. Not
0: not about Bonnie and Clyde. Not or about Walt basketball. Frazier. Exactly. Yes. No, it's uh, it's very unique.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So ta- uh, so, what was it like uh, having a. Uh, your dad and so steeped in journalism as a kid. I know he spent uh, many years overseas.
0: He was uh, a foreign correspondent for the Times, and I should I should tell this addendum since we're we're going down Clyde Haberman memory yes. lane here. We're gonna um, get to Maggie Haberman, but we will we'll get there. Um, the uh, the, the I, I began with him, so it, it works out <laughs> just fine. Um, he started as a City College stringer at the New York Times. Um, and I don't know how he'll feel about me telling this story, but it's not a secret story. Um, he was pretty famously in journalism circles fired because during the days of agate type pre-computers, he was one of the jobs at the City College Stringer was to write up the awards list. And it was very, very long. It was several columns of type and it was all agate, so very, very tiny. Mm-hmm. And it was three in the morning or something like that. And to amuse himself, he inserted an award. And it was uh, the uh, the Bread Award awarded to the student who worked the hardest under uh, a great incapacity, Jake Barnes. Um, and it was about The Sun Also Rises, um, uh. Lady Brett and her impotent lover, Jake Barnes. He forgot to take it out. It ran in the paper. No one noticed it until Ed Kozner, who later was my boss at the Daily News, and I think at the time was at Newsweek, saw it, and he called Abe Rosenthal, uh, then the managing editor, and said this is so funny that you guys have gotten a sense of humor. And <laughs> Rosenthal didn't think it was funny, and he called my father in and asked, did you do this? And my father said, I guess I did it in a moment of silliness. Uh, and Rosenthal said, well, that moment finished you in newspapers. Wow. And so it was, it's a dramatic That's statement. That's rough. Dramatic statement.
1: Th- that story is stunning from a lot of different standpoints, and one of them was that, uh, someone at Newsweek was reading the ad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, sometimes sometimes people who have a certain connection to awards and yes. certain listicles. Um, but uh, so my dad went to the New York Post, which was then owned by Dolly Schiff and was a very yes. different post than it is now. Or the, yeah, I
1: grew, uh, when I was growing up yeah. here, my mother used to take the Post editorial uh, page into the voting booth with her. Wow. because. They were sort of the beacon of progressivism
0: yes that that changed a bit over time <laughs> um, uh, under the Murdoch years but uh, but he went to work there he was a night rewrite man. Uh, And my mother was a copy kid, and Gay Talese uh, wrote the famous book about the New York Times, The Kingdom and the Power. And there's about nine pages that are devoted to the whole Bread Award incident. So my mother was walking around um, with the book under her arm, because her former newspaper man father had given it to her to read, and he was friends with Abe Rosenthal. Uh, And my father saw it and said, oh, you're reading my book. And that is how they uh, got together. He, after a 10-year penance at the Post, got rehired at the Times. And I, I can't think of any Anybody else who's been fired by the Times and was then rehired and fired for something, and like Rosenthal
1: that. was still there. He
0: was still there, and he was a he was a very big fan of my father's. Uh-huh. Um, but so, I he
1: wrote so, it off as a youthful indiscretion. He wrote it off as, yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. Uh, I guess there
1: are worse youthful indiscretions.
0: If you look at it in the totality of a career, and yes. my father, look, this is the thing about tabloids, and you know this very well, both from Chicago and from New York. You can at a tabloid have sort of a more accelerated career arc than you might have at a broadsheet, and especially back then. So he did things at the Post he would not have been able to do at the Times. He covered Jimmy Carter. Um, He would not have been on a presidential race that fast. And that was very important to his career. So he went to the Times, he did a bunch of different jobs. He was the city hall bureau chief uh, at one point when Ed Koch was mayor. Um, and then he was made a foreign correspondent and went to Tokyo. And my parents were divorced at that point. So my brother and I would go visit him for a few months every year. And it was, for me, somewhat removed from the journalism um, and I was obviously not reading the paper at that point. Why well, I, I shouldn't say obviously, I wasn't reading the paper mm-hmm. at that point. Um, there are certainly children uh, who do, and my Precocious son, is, and my son is one of them. Um, but well, for me at that point, I mean, if I'm being candid, it was a nuisance. I mean, this was it was an unpleasantness of our lives was. My father didn't live here, and we mm-hmm. were going somewhere else uh, and uprooted for the summer. I loved Japan. I loved it culturally. I loved everything about it. Um, we used to take the subways, which you couldn't do here, growing up in New York, which is where I grew up. Um, I once accidentally put my brother on a subway in the wrong direction at, a, <laughs> at age eight, and he found his way back. Accidentally, huh? It it. I think Freud would have something to say about <laughs> There's that. There's air quotes around that sometimes with yeah. within the family. Um, but so there were major news events that my father ended up covering um, around that, that I was aware of. I mean, among them were plane crashes, um, upheavals in the Philippines. Uh, from there, he went to Italy. Uh, and when he was in Italy, he covered the Romanian Revolution, which for him, I think, was among the most um, meaningful experiences, coverage-wise. Uh, and then he went to Israel, which I know he found a very draining experience. And yet it was not the Israel that we have seen over the last 16 years, um, 17 years. He left two months before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated and he went back for a return engagement in August of 2001. And I remember uh, my now husband, then boyfriend, and I were at his house for dinner on September 9th, 2001. And he Mm -hmm. was talking about changes in the terrorism landscape, how there were now uh, female suicide bombers, which was a huge, huge, huge change. And two days later 9-11 happened and he wrote this column that I still um, periodically read, the, the lead of the column was, do you get it now? And it was really to convey to people, this is what Israelis have been living with for a very long time. Obviously not on as large a scale as we saw at the World Trade Center, but
1: he was right. Yeah. So you talked about the, um, uh, the, the uh, opportunity that tabloids give you, and you started off at the Post, right? Mm Mm-hmm, I did. Uh, Now, you didn't want to, uh, you you made the point of telling me, I I didn't really intend to become a journalist, um, even with all these heavy influences. Maybe it was because of all those heavy influences.
0: Yeah, that's less Freudian and just probably likely. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, I I didn't. Um, I, uh, I went to Sarah Lawrence College. I was very interested in fiction writing, and I always had been from the time I was, very very young um journalism was what my father did it it did not uh it did not capture me the way it did him so i couldn't get a job in magazines which is what i was looking for um and really my my writing structure for news has always been come, come less easily to me than fiction writing um but uh
1: uh, I think be, it will relieve everybody to know that you separate those forms I, of writing. I was
0: waiting for that joke. and I was <laughs> going to be amazed if you let that opportunity go by. Um, we, uh, uh, I got a job as a copy kid at clerk at the Post, and it, it paid something like $250 a week. I mean, it was really like nothing. And I was bartending at the time because that was the only way that I could still afford the rent. Um, and I remember the first day really not enjoying it and feeling sort of jarred. But the second day that something about the energy and the New York Post, um, in the mid 90s, Rupert Murdoch had just rebought it. Um, it had survived a, a near death experience. And it was a pretty magical place. And I fell in love with it. Um, and they would set that what they used to do then, and I think they still do, they would send copy kids out on tryouts uh, for stories. And so a couple of times I was sent out, you know, there are things that, that are horrible when you think about them in a human context. Um, go go, try to get an interview with, you know, the father of this person who just had a horrific accident. Right. Um, you know, go try to sneak into Lionel Hampton's. Yes. You know, I've had, I had all these kinds of experiences exactly. when I was a young yes. reporter. Yes. And so, but but they went well. And, there, and there's an amazing adrenaline surge about doing it. Um, and I worked with Amazing journalists. I mean, Jack Newfield was at the New York Post yeah. when I was there, and he took me Great. under his investigative w- reporting. Yeah, a famous muckraker. He took me in um, as one of his interns, and we did a bunch of ten worst judges projects together, and uh, a big look at the Brooklyn Surrogates Court together, and that was incredibly meaningful. And so I stayed, and I and I loved it. And then I met my husband, mm-hmm. so <laughs> so then I stayed.
1: So you, you ta- I, I, I feel very deeply what you're saying because I grew up in a newsroom mm-hmm. at the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. And um, the energy was f- tremendous.
0: I can't imagine in Chicago what
1: yeah, the energy was Yeah, it like. was great. No, and when you talk about sneaking into Lionel Hampton's thing, I, I, uh, one of my early assignments was to sneak into the wedding reception of the mayor of Chicago who was <laughs> old, who had married the socialite, and it was at a country club. Oh, God. And I, ha- I drove around the perimeter of the country club, which was r- well secured. Of course. And found some one who had a home on the golf course and uh, was bitter that they hadn't been invited to the wedding. So they, <laughs> they let me in off of their the back of their lawn, and I was able to. But I I was determined not to go back without the story. And you got it. And I got it, That's yeah. Before I, I got enough color in the reception before they figured out who I was. <laughs> And then and ejected me, but I, they drove me triumphantly through the front gate on a golf cart, and there were all my colleagues standing outside, and I felt very very good about getting the beat on that story. That's so.
0: exactly that sensation, and also some of the best um, potential uh, inputs on source income from people who are embittered for some reason yes, or another is the absolutely. other big lesson.
1: Yes, the the aggrieved exactly. source is uh, the lifeblood of a- correct. Of a reporter, <laughs> so um, and you, you, but you've been, uh, you've been at several. You went to the news,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, then back to the post.
1: And you, you've covered, you, you covered Rudy Giuliani. You covered City Hall, so you fo- followed in your father's footsteps and as a City Hall reporter, um, you know. And I was a City Hall bureau chief as mm-hmm. well. Talk about that, sure. and what did you learn about politics from uh, covering? Uh, Both Giuliani, in particular, and City Hall.
0: It's a great question. I mean, when I first met you was when I was still covering City Hall, the two thousand one mayor's race. I was sent down to City Hall in 1999. Um, I was—I don't remember how old I was because I can't remember how old I am now. I was about 25 or 26. Um, or I was going to guess 15. That, oh, wow! Keep, we can do this all day long. Um, <laughs> but um, Dave Seifman, who you know well, was the bureau chief at that point. Uh, Bob Hart, who you also know yes. very mm-hmm. well, um, was sort of his de facto deputy. And Bob is uh, one of my close friends. Yeah. was in our wedding
1: and so great, forth. Great city politics. Great reporter. city
0: politics reporter and just a. Really Really smart and thoughtful person. Yeah. Um, he taught me a lot. Um, when I first got there, you know, you <clears throat> certainly at, at the post. Um, there's as much focus on sort of agency uh, through politics and personality through politics as mm-hmm. there is on anything else. So, at that time, there was an enormous rift. It had always existed, sort of subterra, but it had really blown open between the mayor, Rudy Giuliani, and the governor, George Pataki. Um, And within my first few months there, um, there was a commission appointed by the governor, Moreland Act Commission, which was basically the governor has enormous powers um, to do certain levels of oversight. And it was all about the education system. And that had been a huge source of push and pull and a power center between Giuliani and the governor for a very long time um, <clears throat>
1: we should say parenthetically that uh, governors and mayors of the same mm. party historically have Correct. not gotten a well uh got along well and that's a tradition that continues to this to day this, in the city of new york if
0: we walk if we walked down a few miles we could go see how well the relationship between <laughs> democrat bill de Blasio and democrat andrew cuomo was yeah, going
1: not well not so much.
0: Yeah. Um, but Giuliani was this remarkable figure. I mean, he had he had gotten elected, and I and I mean that both in the positive ways and the controversial mm-hmm. ways. Um, he had gotten elected in this tremendously racialized climate in 1993, after um, losing by a pretty similar margin in '89. To David to Dinkins, da- to the first the black first black mayor, black mayor of first and only of New York, black yeah. mayor of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, um, uh, but Giuliani came in as this as this crimebuster, former prosecutor. Uh, very much playing to what was still the existent um, white ethnic outer borough base, um, people who became known as the Giuliani Democrats because the city is overwhelmingly Democratic. There's, I think it's, I think the edge is six to one. Five to one. Yeah, it's still five to one. Um, <clears throat> Could be
1: six to one now.
0: But so, I think it's up to six to one at this yeah. point because the city's grown more liberal. But it is uh, the first thing that I learned about politics was really honestly about how coalitions work. I mean, I know that that sounds very basic, but just watching what Giuliani did, there were enormous panders. Uh, he would pander to the Orthodox community in terms of certain outlays, and there, there were always sort of pockets of scandal that related to that. Um, he would pander certain
1: donors who had been very close to him.
0: He would pander to... With which the,
1: point you meant the Orthodox Jewish community. Cor- correct.
0: Yeah. Um, sorry, thank you for correcting me. Um, and he... Um, uh, and so I learned basically the way at its rawest form the levers of power function. And the thing
1: about cities are that most big cities are very diverse, and they have yes. distinct ethnic right. communities uh, and communities of interest. Right. So mayors mayors survey that, and they, they put their coalitions together, as you suggest.
0: Right, and that was... Um, he did it. It's always been very frontal and fairly raw politics in New York City and in most big cities. Yeah. It's certainly true in Chicago, but yes. they've always been very tribal. Um, mm-hmm. And and Giuliani was no exception. Um, but what was remarkable about Giuliani was where well, there were two things. One was that Giuliani um, was constantly floating a higher office ambition to keep himself relevant. So. They floated, his folks floated a, a 2,000, his advisors, a 2,000 Senate race that he really was not interested in. And then uh, when Hillary Clinton made clear she was interested in running, suddenly the Republicans needed a real candidate against her. And so this sort of act of vanity became fairly detrimental and taken very seriously. Giuliani's heart was never in it. Um, he was having...
1: Uh, yeah, where Giuliani's heart was was kind of the problem. I right? was
0: I was... Just going there. In fact, um, he was he was having uh, an affair with uh, his now wife Judith Nathan. Um, he and his wife Donna Hanover, his second wife, uh, were fairly estranged at that point. A lot of reporters, myself included, knew that there was something going on. Um,
1: did you write um, about it?
0: We did eventually. I mean, the point at which we wrote about it was the point at which Giuliani was being pretty public about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he and he, he and Judith Nathan were going to restaurants, and and they were they were seen very frequently. in um, in you know, she was meeting him at at a, I think it was at Club Macanudo at the cigar bar. He's a big cigar aficionado. He took her to the Yankees game opener. Um, now so that's that, a serious date. It's right a serious there. date, especially for him. And yeah. so you know, this blew open. Um, what was difficult about covering all of that... So so two things, actually. I was thinking about this when you were asking about what I learned. My first thought was this story, and this was also the adrenaline point... The hardest thing about covering that whole period was that it, uh, Giuliani had two kids, and so mm. and Judith Nathan had a daughter, has a daughter. Um, so there were there were real practical implications for innocents in this whole yeah. thing who are of nothing to are not combatants in this war, but it very quickly became a war between Giuliani and Donna Hanover. Um, I remember attending, and then it began to it's sort like of like
1: the War of the Roses. Kind exactly,
0: of thing. Giuliani got cancer; he got prostate cancer, and that that became why he removed himself from the senate race rick lazio stepped in in may of 2000 um literally tripped and fell flat on his face um at the memorial day parade uh which was his first real appearance split his lip and it was instant metaphor Hmm. campaign never really recovered um Hmm. you know he just never really took off against her um against clinton but giuliani reinvested himself as as mayor was having real trouble with the fact that he was leaving his popularity was very low at that point as you remember in 2001 Um, and uh, when Mike Bloomberg started running as sort of this semi-heir to Giuliani, and he wasn't quite sure how to position himself yet, I remember going to an event where Bloomberg was speaking. I'm pretty sure he had declared at this point—that year is a bit of a blur by now— but. Um, it was, at some, it was like the Yale Club or the Harvard Club or the Penn Club, some club some, affiliated, affiliated with an some, Ivy League yes.
1: institution. Some mainstream some main, exactly class I was going to say it was
0: some, some, some 99% event. Um, <laughs> but I remember bumping into somebody there um, who knew Giuliani well, and the person said, I'm going to give you a tip. You should uh, check in with City Hall tomorrow because Donna Hanover is getting a, a letter uh, that uh, Rudy is firing her as First Lady and i thought oh i'm not waiting until tomorrow for this so i made a phone call um, and i called Seifman, at the bureau chief and we confirmed it within about 2 hours and it was a it was a hell of a story it was a, you know and it's crazy to think about it yeah. firing his wife um, <laughs> and so there was that instant adrenaline rush that you were talking about about i you know i snuck into the wedding right that was my first thought. My second thought was, oh my God, he's firing his wife and he's doing it in this public way. It just was, when I think, go back and I think- What a great
1: tabloid story. I mean,
0: it was, it was a great tabloid story, as was his press conference announcing that he was separating from her, which she says still that she learned from that. Um, But so then, and then events got sort of overtaken by the mayor's race in 2001. And that was, as you know, a
1: yeah, well, that was a, you know, I was involved in that race working for Freddie Ferrer. As that's when we met. Who, <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, And we, um, that was an interesting race because everybody, even though Giuliani was unpopular, mm-hmm. most of the Democratic candidates were uh, very much um, uh, trying to navigate around him. They were mm-hmm. not willing to take him on, and mm-hmm. Ferrer, did take him yes. on and was able to forge what, growing up in New York, I had never seen before, which was a black-brown yes. coalition. Yes. You talk about the tribal nature yep. of politics. Um, and then the whole thing changed in one, one instant. Morning. So Freddie Ferrer did very well uh, by staking out this area that nobody else would and taking Giuliani straight on mm-hmm. as someone who had neglected large uh uh, swaths of the city the minority mm-hmm. community uh, and um, w- went into the election day which was 2000 uh, which was September 11 2001 with a uh, I think he would have mm-hmm. been nominated that day and then polls
0: the, and public polling indicated that certainly
1: and then uh, came the, the the 9/11 attacks where, where were you when those happened
0: uh, I was uh, En route to vote, I no longer—I um, hadn't re-registered um, uh, at my new address, so I was going to where I had recently moved from to vote on the Upper West Side. Uh, and the first person—and I—and I couldn't really make sense of it. I walked in, they were talking about it. I—I I called my boyfriend, now husband, uh, who said he was not really sure what was going on, but he was getting called into the office. Um, And then my second phone call was to uh, actually to Ed Schuyler, who was Mayor's press secretary. Well, then Mike Bloomberg, candidate Bloomberg's press secretary. It was on the campaign. The campaign, which on 9 10 had been fending off questions about a really inappropriate book of jokes of things that Mike Bloomberg had said that Anthony Weiner. Passed around on the steps of City Hall to reporters. To get my, of,
1: I'm trying to get my head around all of what you. Just there's, a said, lot,
0: there's a lot. There's a lot wrapped in there, um, but um, all of which has become national. But uh, uh, I, my instinct was to run toward the story, so I got in a cab and I.
1: Uh, See, that's a good news news person's instinct. It was that's a good reporter's instinct. It was
0: not. It was not a. It was not a smart instinct. But it was. But it was. I went. Um, but. I. It was a livery cab. We drove down the West Side Highway. We had, I think it was 1010 10 Winds on, and they were just doing you know, mm-hmm. constant coverage. And one of the towers fell when I was on my way down there. And
1: could you see it falling? Couldn't
0: see it. Could hear the description from the reporters down there over the radio. They were initially describing it as some floors have fallen off because they couldn't really see. Yeah. It was just an enormous plume of smoke um, and debris and dust. Uh, I got down there and there were, uh, pedestrians, uh, directing traffic. Um, it was, I've really never seen, I'm sorry. I, that day was impactful for me. And, uh, as it
1: was for uh, so many in the city and,
0: and, and and outside uh, of the city. But, uh, I, I was very moved by, I mean, people were just trying to help. And so I, the cab, the cab got stopped at Clinal Street because basically there was just a mass of people, um, trying to keep cars away to help the cops out who were totally overwhelmed. And so I got out of the cab and I started running. At that point I was a smoker, um, and I so I could maybe run like two blocks and then I would get winded. But I started running down, um, and I got a couple of blocks north of the trade center site, and there were people just standing in the street. And there were no cars. Everybody was just standing watching um, and staring in one direction. And a van, a police van pulled up. Like, it was literally like it pulled around the corner very fast and stopped and screeched. And over the loudspeaker on top of the car, one of the cops, it was a male cop, yelled uh, very quickly, if you want to get out of here and not get hurt, you've got to evacuate now. And he was like yelling. And so people screamed because they didn't know what it meant. And they started running north. Um, and I ran north a couple of blocks until I just couldn't run anymore. Uh, and I stopped and I turned around. And you could see the second tower kind of s- sway. Uh-huh. And then it just fell. And it was uh, the most horrible thing I have ever seen.
1: I um, I was on the phone with a guy you know, John Del Cicado oh, sure. who was working for Frey Ferrer at the time. He ultimately became yeah. my my uh, partner.
0: It was his press secretary at that point? And that uh,
1: John uh, would call me and said um, that he he said the weird thing. I was packing to come to New York mm. for the what you, I thought would, would be Chicago a victory party point? in Chicago, and. Um, he said the weirdest thing happened a plane just hit the World Trade Center and um, he, he and uh, I turned on the TV and I'm watching this and the second plane hit and I and I'm still on the phone with John I said John there's not going to be an election today <laughs> this, this is not an accident yeah. you know yeah. and um, uh, what, what it seems almost uh, I, I don't want to trivialize what was one of the most horrific Mm -hmm. events in American history, but it also had a transformative impact on the politics of the city. It's the reality. it did, Because um, Rudy Giuliani, who was pretty much um, uh, on the way out and not trading high, as we said, uh, now became kind of a heroic figure as the mayor of the city under attack. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point he called Ferrer, uh, there was a hmm. the election was postponed. Ferrer came in first, but not enough to win without a runoff, and ultimately he lost. In a runoff during that runoff, Giuliani called him and his opponent Mark Green, yep. and said he wanted to stay on, and would they allow him to be mayor for three more months?
0: Yes, this, this uh, strange exception. And Mark agreed to it.
1: Right, Freddie didn't. That was yep. his best moment. His best he said, moment. "If I'm not ready to be mayor on yep. on on the January first, I, I shouldn't be mayor at all." But um, Mike Bloomberg really. Uh, Ended up as mayor of New York, in in part because that Democratic primary was so vituperative. It was a horrible primary. And uh, he ended up winning a lot of Hispanic votes, people who had supported Ferrer. So a lot of political history in New York was Mm -hmm. changed uh, as a result of that. So you went from the Post to the News. Mm -hmm. um, And part of what you became, and you mentioned this about the 2000 race, Something of an expert on Hillary Clinton, which seems like a handy thing right <laughs> at now. At the moment. <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah. And you, covering city politics, mm-hmm. you probably ran across Donald Trump from time to bit. time as well. Yep. Okay, so tell us what you learned about both of them.
0: Sure. And I, I want to just uh, asterisk that with one thing I started to say before about that 2001 race, that the coalition that Ferrer put together on the race that you ran— did become the, the course of history changed, but the politics of the city ultimately really didn't in terms of the trajectory. And so the, the coalition that he put together um, and the idea behind it was a DNA blueprint for what de Blasio later used. Right. And so certain things I think were put on hold after 9 11, certain changes that were probably about to come anyway. I think that there was a lot of deferred reaction. Um, on many the thing fronts. that made
1: the, the two thousand one thing sort of remarkable for from one who grew up in New York, mm-hmm. I remember um, the, the, this wonderful, wonderful woman who took, who really raised me, who took care of me when my mother was at work. Jesse Barry, she mm-hmm. was an African American woman from uh, South Carolina who moved to Harlem, um, and she was virulently anti Puerto Rican. That's she interesting. She, and huh. those tensions existed. Yes there uh, sure. for a long time. Absolutely. It, it wasn't a natural coalition no. between blacks and Hispanics. Nope. And it was really f- forged in that uh, election behind a Hispanic yes. candidate, which yes. is what made it yes. uh, the more all the more remarkable. So, uh, given the demographics mm-hmm. of the city. But anyway, So sorry, uh, I didn't mean to digress. No, that's okay. This is, um, it's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's what we're all about over here.
0: <laughs> we, we, we're taking the meandering road. Uh, Clinton... Um, I covered off and on um, in the course of covering city politics and I covered rebuilding at the trade center for several years. Mm-hmm. So that intersected with Clinton that in a strange way intersected with Trump because of the real estate aspect mm-hmm. of it, because Trump would, you know, insinuate himself into these stories. And he, I think in 2004, as only, he can. as only he can. And in 2004, he did a press conference, you know, with his idea for how we should rebuild the towers. And it was very, very Trump. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I covered Clinton's 2008 race um, in fits and starts. I covered Giuliani's failed race. Um, his was his was a fit and then not really a start. Uh, and then Clinton's, you know, sort of time in 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 the State Department. I was less involved with afterwards when she left. I was a Politico at that point. Uh, in 2013, and I covered her pretty... Why
1: can't you hold a job? That's what I want to do. <laughs> Anyway.
0: I covered her pretty... <laughs> Let's talk about that on November 9th. I, uh, <laughs> I, um, uh, I covered her pretty extensively after that at Politico. We, we were very, very aggressive, as was the Times. Amy Chosek, at at my now colleague, and I, I think, were the two reporters, and Ruby Kramer of BuzzFeed, the three, who were really following her everywhere. Um, Trump, I had covered off and on at the tabloids. As you said, you know, you became... Um, steeped in knowing that there were times when a source close to Trump would appear on the gossip pages. And that source was so close that he was Trump himself. (laughs) Um, But so um, in 2010, I had a New York focus blog at Politico where I had just started working. And I was also pregnant with my third kid. So my interests were sort of divided. Um, I found this recently, actually, a a friend of mine found it for me. I had done a, a blog item about how Trump was starting to do fundraising events for Republican committees and one was with Christie and one was, um, Christie had just gotten elected a year earlier in New Jersey um, in what was that emerging wave. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, early 2011, um, Roger Stone put into the Times a story about how Trump was going to speak at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee mm-hmm. conference. Um, and was this the potential beginning of a run? And um, and it kicked off all of this buzz. And I remember, you know, I went to CPAC to cover Trump, and he gave this speech that was filled with the same sort of obsessions that he has now um you know it was all about china and it was all about the ripping us off and oil prices and saudi arabia and why are we paying for other people's defenses um and it was a little less bombastic than it was he raised a question in that speech about the president's the birth certificate he didn't say the birth certificate he did the transfer it was it was that it was nobody remembers seeing him in high school or something like that it was sort of the first seed was planted and then a few weeks later, he started with birtherism, which seemed to come out of nowhere. It obviously didn't come out of nowhere, um, but he was very, very focused on it um, until the point when the president did release the long form birth certificate, which um, you know he had asked people to go right. get from Hawaii. Um, and it happened on the day when Trump um, <coughs> landed on his helicopter in New Hampshire. For what was supposed to be his big foray and day into politics, and at that point, and Ben Smith and I did were you story, there? I was there, and Ben Smith and I did a story about this at Politico. Ben is now at BuzzFeed. Um, ben is another very old friend um, yes. from the City Hall days. Um, just about the question was: Is Trump serious? Yes. The answer is yes and no. And I went back and I read that story recently, and it really was the the proto for what we're seeing now. But at that point, Trump was sort of. Um, <coughs> playing the part of billionaire candidate they had a stretch limo come up and take him around new hampshire because that's what a billionaire would do yes um and he has not done things like that he has not also really done any retail that's not the kind of campaigning that he does um clinton had a very different track which was she did her paid speeches and she was very focused on that in 2013 and her book deal in 2014 and i have written and other, many of your former colleagues in the white house have argued to me that she squandered a Large amount of time, which I think was true, um, and then you that, have a
1: slightly different view, which is that if I were her, I would have gone to a mountain somewhere
0: mm-hmm. and not said a word ever.
1: Right. Yeah. Not for you said that several at the time. years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I would have contemplated the future of the middle class. Right. And I would have written a book about that. Mhm. Uh But um, you her know, husband
0: I, did that in 2012 or 2010 or something like that. That's not. That is not what she did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she there was you know, there is a constant um, concern with both Clintons about money. And that has just sort of been pervasive throughout their public career and um, public careers. And it emerged there. So she was on this one track, which was sort of, of becoming the last globalist candidate. And Trump was on this other track of Seriously, preparing to run for president and having nobody take that seriously or very few people take that seriously.
1: How seriously did you take it?
0: Uh, I didn't. I mean, I'm, I've been pretty candid about this. I, um, uh, a former uh, 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 aide of his called me and said, we want you to break this, you know, Trump is going to announce, we want you to, and I had really spent a lot of time on this in 2011, and written about it extensively, and said, you know, this is more serious than I had thought, and less Potemkin than I had thought.
1: So you had a fool me once, shame on I you. I had, well, I,
0: or, or fool us like four times. I mean, like, mm-hmm. how many times has he talked about running? Um, this person said, Back to the 80s. Back to the 80s, 80, 87, when he yeah. was promoting Art of the Deal. And on the same issue set, so this person said, he's going to declare on June 16th, and we want you to break it, and I said, no. And I've thought about that a lot since, and you know, did I make a mistake? and I didn't make a mistake? I didn't if he wasn't going to run, I didn't want to tease this. I said he, I said, I'm not writing anything until he says he's running. Uh, like uh, the day he declares files, whatever. And he did do all of that. The point at which I did start taking it seriously was around August when I saw how big the crowds were. He was getting crowds in, in the deep south that were enormous, and they were very impactful for him mm-hmm. personally. Um, one of his uh, former aides, Sam Nunberg, uh, studied your book and studied things you had said about Obama, um, and studied Obama's speeches, and they did try to capture some of hmm. that and what he's doing. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that is the part of sort of being inspirational. He's in, he's not hopeful. He is not promising um, something better in the way that Obama did, but he is promising to be a change agent, and, yes, and, and that is sta- what. It,
1: st- and to stave off uh, Armageddon.
0: Correct, and that is, and he's again, he is doing it by saying Armageddon's here,
1: mm-hmm. not
0: it might come someday. He's saying it's all so terrible, you guys don't even realize how terrible it is, and only I can fix it. But he he did do it in a certain way that was based on how Obama. Portions of anyway, how Obama approached the race. No way.
1: How much of you, you? You've said something interesting to me, which is that Donald Trump has been very consistent in some of his themes dating back mm-hmm. to the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of this does he believe? I mean, is, are these are these closely held views of his, uh, strongly held views of his, uh, or are they? Um, or or are they his view as a marketer of what sells
0: so it's an excellent question um, i think that some of some of them are closely held beliefs he does believe the united states is making poor deal i mean again he has been saying some version of this under presidents Repu- uh, republican and democrat for a very long time so he does fundamentally believe that i don't think it's just that he thinks it sells because at times it really doesn't sell at times it goes against sort of what what fact based thought would tell you um, he does I think genuinely believe um, in uh, certain blunt force authoritarian positions if you look back at that 80s era one of the uh, he had a famous falling out with Mayor Koch who had sort of been an advocate for of his for a while within the city because Koch was trying to rebuild the economy through all these public private partnerships and Trump was very eager to take advantage of that and mm-hmm. um, Koch felt shown up when Trump was able to complete and refurbish the woman rink ice rink in central park within yes. six months, which and it had sat languishing for years and years and years prior to that. Uh, Koch never liked somebody being able to do something better than he could, especially when he was stymied by government and regulations. Um, but they had a falling out when after the central park jogger uh, yeah. case,
1: this is, this is an interesting story.
0: Um, Trump, um, Took out a full-page ad. Uh, I believe it was in the Times, and said
1: they should be executed. Bring
0: back the death penalty. Um, and, they and, were, and they were. And those kids black, end up being uh, exonerated. Uh, innocent. Yep, they were exonerated many decades later. But, but it was a really, really racialized, um, blunt approach from Trump, and it is consistent with what we have seen in this campaign. Um, so, I don't think it is just that he says things that he thinks will sell. I think that there are. Certain hobby horses that he has had for a very long time, um, and the idea of sort of pitting one group against another is one of them.
1: What is what is the level? Uh, people keep saying, "Well, he's he's going to turn the page and become more uh, presidential." And and uh, but his and he's reading now speeches off of mm-hmm. teleprompters.
0: It's pretty. It's pretty we're, we're lowering the the bar. My hand is like an inch presidential floor right now. Yes.
1: Yes, but. W- how depthful is he on these issues? If you you've interviewed him, mm-hmm. you you've engaged him. Mm-hmm. What's your sense of that?
0: I think that there are enormous aspects of the presidency that he has given very little thought to. Um, I think that on the basic concept of, uh, you know, he disagrees with trade pacts and he's been you know he' was critical of NAFTA back to the the 1990s which his campaign just made a point of pointing out it's the kind of thing that a, a typical campaign would have pointed out a long time ago um, just to make the point that he's consistent because he's been inconsistent in so many other places as you as you noted um, uh, or alluded to Um he does not have a tremendous grasp of the details. He does not have a tremendous grasp of uh, the nuances of international policy. Um, he separates out, and this is this is a point that um, my colleague David Sanger made yesterday, and it's dead on, that Trump acts as if the economic interests of dealing with a foreign country can somehow be separated out from the security aspects, and it just can't. And so um, I don't think that he has given... Um, enormous thought to a lot of this. I do think that he gets briefed, and I think he will. And and to be be clear, he would not be the first rich guy candidate to do a, yeah, yeah, I got it, when somebody's briefing him. Mike Bloomberg was famous for that. Um, But I don't think that Trump um, has given tremendous thought to this. I did think his speech yesterday was very good um, in terms of uh, it was coherent, it was a consistent theme throughout there was a through line unlike the speech last week which was sort of the first half was That like, was a screed. That was. I mean and it was and it was No, like yesterday's speech, speech job.
1: was a and uh, was a uh, you know it was a very strong populist track. Yes. It was in the post-Brexit exactly. era he exactly. kind of captured the Zeitgeist. Exactly. Uh, and went really really way to the left yep. uh Absolutely. Of, of, of Hillary. So let's talk about her for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh First of all, how has she changed since you've uh, been covering her, which is now uh, 16 years?
0: 17 years, yeah. Um, So I think that...
1: uh, And how hasn't she?
0: I mean, right. I I would say that that's a longer list. The way in which she has changed is I think that she has become more willing um, to accept certain modifications that she has to make, but I think she has had to be brought there um, grudgingly uh, a lot. I think that... At the end By of the,
1: modifications, what do you mean?
0: I mean, in terms of you know, sort of um, her instincts, in terms of behavior internally within the campaign, in terms of who she'll listen to, in terms of opening up the circle. She did open up the circle and bring in fresh people. She has not, for this campaign, she has not always been good about listening to them. And so she has not just one sort of shadow cabinet, but she's got several shadow cabinets, and she's getting people whispering in her ear all the time. That can be deeply frustrating to uh, the people who are actually paid to give her advice. Um, I think that she has been more willing to recognize third-party objective reality. And so let me give you an example. Um, uh, Glenn Thrush, another former mm-hmm. colleague um, yes. and friend of both of ours, um, wrote a, a piece that was absolutely true uh, in the lead-up to the New Hampshire primary, which she lost by a lot. She had just squeaked out a half-a-point victory, a in con- contentious mm-hmm. in Iowa, and um, and she was looking at a shakeup, and, uh, because that is her muscle memory, is to go toward a shakeup. Um, I think that when—and and Politico didn't just do a sort of quick hit. It was a news alert, and it got picked up by cable television and so forth. And I think that when she saw the headlines and how negative they were, her instinct was actually, oh, this is kind of bad, and I'm, I should not go down this road, because it was a real uh, bad echo of her 2008 campaign, which mm-hmm. was— and constant turmoil once the voting began, um, and so she made a change, and she didn't. The change was that she made no changes, right? So that I think is a big, cha- a big uh, difference in in her from before. But where she hasn't changed, and this is this is you know going to sound self-serving because I'm a reporter, but she still dislikes the press intensely. She is still incredibly mistrustful of the press. Um, she has done herself no favors um, with sort of the broader press corps and assuming that. It, Everybody is out to get her. Um, And she had, where I think the real example of her not changing was her reaction to the email uh, server stories last year about her private email server at the State Department. Um, The impulse was to act as if this was something unfair being done to her as opposed to looking at she did this thing that was ill-advised, that she herself has acknowledged was ill-advised.
1: She's acknowledged it. Do you think she believes it?
0: No, I do not. I think that she thinks that she was doing I mean again I can't speak what to do you think the motivation
1: was for the
0: I think and and to be clear I I don't know she thinks this this mm-hmm. is just my my guess um, I I think that she was doing it and people close to her said she was doing it because she's been examined to death under 800 microscopes over many decades um, in a lot of investigations that were politically driven um, and that cost everybody around them enormous legal fees um, and um, I think she did not want to provide. She felt that no matter what she did, that was that was likely to happen. So she wanted to keep some keep. You know, zone as, of privacy. Yeah, as as James Carville put it, you know, you didn't want Louis Gohmert going through her emails. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is that it was um, it was directly at odds with how the president uh, Obama had viewed transparency on on records keeping.
1: And uh, how damaging do you think that story's been to her?
0: I think it was damaging because they let it go. Way too long without answering it. I mean, I think that she did that initial press conference in front of the Guernica, at the United Nations, mm-hmm. um, back in March last year, um, and then she felt like she had dealt with it and that was enough. Um, and then there was sort of a drip, drip of when once it once it went to um, once there was an FBI investigation as to what had happened, which her team was terming at the time a security review. I mean, and and. James Comey said the other day, the head of the FBI, I don't know what that term means, you know, and the word investigation is in our name. This is an investigation. Um, she she does not appear to be a target of that investigation, but there is an investigation. Once that was happening, um, the people around her urged her to deal with this and find some way to address it and talk about it because they were seeing it show up in her numbers, and she just didn't want to deal with it. And as I understand it from people around her, it sent her to a very sort of dark place of... Um, controversies past when her husband was president, things like, uh, things like Whitewater, um, you know, the the impeachment hearings, things like that, that that um, that ultimately ended up hurting Republicans as something of an overreach, but that put them through a lot of mm-hmm. uh, unhappiness. It
1: feels like she's gotten her footing though yeah. as a candidate in the last few since the campaign shifted to Trump and away from Bernie Sanders. She seems like She's much more comfortable out there.
0: Um, I think that she, uh, I think that, and this is where, again, I think there has been a real change in her. I think that by sort of just putting her head down and not getting swirled up in the internal drama um, and just grinding it out, uh, and she certainly had periods where she was frustrated, but I do think she found her footing. Um, I do think that in many ways, Sanders probably did make her a better candidate uh, for the fall. Uh, he probably did her a favor by helping mm-hmm. drag her to the left on certain issues, because that's where Trump is trying to run to, as you said, um, and where there is enormous... I bet uh, you the
1: thank you note is in the middle right
0: <laughs> now. <laughs> it's, it's en route. Um, you know, the I do think that, that that helped. And I think she's found her footing in part because... It's interesting. One of the criticisms of the campaign, and I'm curious what you think of this, uh, for a while was that she wasn't prosecuting a case for herself, Mm -hmm. and she wasn't prosecuting a case against Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a real effort to outsource all of the criticism to surrogates. You know, she's going to ride above the fray. Um, The outsourcing of it was not working, so she ended up having to do that speech herself. And I've heard conflicting things about whether she actually wanted to do that speech herself, where she allegedly a foreign policy speech but was really her— you know, laying out the stage. Yeah, that
1: was a pretty uh, that was a pretty uh, <laughs> that was a pretty um, impactful. I think that was yeah. a, a watershed event yeah. in the campaign, and yes. the follow-on speeches were as well. You know, what strikes me is she is someone who's very serious about government. Yes, she is, and she does a, she is an institutionalist. Yes, uh, and uh, I, it, it strikes me that she is offended by Trump, and she can't picture him. In that office, and that's sort of for her. It's it's focused the race. It's defined mm-hmm. the race in a way that, that is is easy to for her to understand communicate.
0: I think that's correct. I think that it took a little while for them to realize that the frame was not making him sound like a you know Rick Perry or Mitt Romney by calling him extreme, because that's really not what you're talking about. Um, but. But defining him as dangerous and defining him as dangerous on a global scale is actually something that is right in her wheelhouse. And I think that she was able to, as you said, she could sort of digest that and find a way to project it
1: back out. What happens now? uh, We've got conventions coming up. The biggest decision that both have to make are on vice presidential candidates. I mean, Trump has a particular challenge on his convention in that nobody wants to go or very few people.
0: From the political realm anyway. Right. Right. Who
1: want to speak. Yep. So as they talk about the, I mean, what kind of convention do you expect from Trump?
0: I'm expecting, I'm expecting something unlike anything we've seen. The, the thing that I'm, I'm very fixated on is one of the hallmarks of Trump's rallies, and this hasn't gotten that much attention. Um, uh, the Journal did a story about it a couple of weeks ago. But uh, he has, at most of his rallies, or many of them anyway, um, relatives of somebody who was killed by an illegal immigrant um, speak And they talk about the dangers of having undocumented immigrants here. I mean, that would be unfathomable um, with any other campaign. But I do assume you are going to see some of those relatives um, Mm -hmm. given real speaking slots at the convention. Um, There was a report that Trump knocked down that he's, you know, trying to line up Mike Tyson. I believe that that was floated by the campaign and in all likelihood to see how it would play. It did not play so well. Uh, but he has said he is looking to line up, you know, sort of retired sports figures. Um, some of them he's thrown their names out and they're not actually on board with that. I'm expecting something surreal. I mean, the biggest question for me out of that convention is less about, you know, sort of what show appears, but how... Uh, you know how Paul Ryan handles this challenge of chairing this convention while, yeah. while openly calling Trump a racist.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's going to be an interesting. Who, who's, so who's the running mate? <laughs> um,
0: the the names that I that I continue to hear. I mean, it is not Newt Gingrich, and Newt acknowledged the other day he's not being vetted. Uh, the names I continue to hear are Christy Fallon, Sessions. Um,
1: Governor Fallon from Oklahoma. From Oklahoma. Jeff <laughs> Sessions, the senator from. Alabama. From Alabama
0: and a close Trump advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, he mean, he's really very involved in the campaign, but Christie is also very involved in the campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, people like Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, he has a military background. Uh, Trump somehow knows him personally. I don't know the backstory there. But honestly, it's not a typical vetting process. It's going to. And be, what
1: about Corker, Senator Corker? Corker
0: is still in the running, but I, I think he's a longer shot.
1: Uh, we got to run, but I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you on the Hillary side. She just had a big... Um, event with Elizabeth Warren that got a lot mm-hmm. of notice for the two, two blue el- pantsuits electricity right. that it uh, generated uh, what do you hear on that side of the
0: I mean she's being she is being vetted they are looking at her uh, very few people around Clinton expect that she will be the VP uh, Tim Kaine be- seems to be because be, for many reasons but among them um, the risk of two women she's not a safe choice she will outshine Clinton uh, and there's not a ton of personal chemistry there mm-hmm. that's what I hear
1: all right. Well, we're gonna we'll find out uh, soon enough. Very soon. But uh, Maggie Haberman, uh, your stuff is always great to read and Thank you. informative and well reported. So uh, I hope folks uh, take a look between now and November if, for if they want to really know what's going.
0: on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.